there. This is the A Lot to Say podcast, a conversation-based project focused on unconventional career paths and the projects that consume us. I'm your host, Gary Williams, or Gaz, as many call me. And A Lot to Say is part of the Alt Project's family of content, uh, obsessing about the overlap between creativity, technology, and culture. I'm fortunate to spend my days working alongside technologists, artists, researchers, and people who just generally give a damn about the world we live in. And I'm very lucky to be able to hear of some incredible career journeys over that time from some really inspiring people. So I am particularly energized by the projects that I hear people are experimenting and tinkering on along the way. And I thought, you know what, it's time to put these stories out there with the A Lot to Say podcast project. I can't wait for you to hopefully discover some new and lesser known stories about the things people get wrapped up in and what led them to this point. This is A Lot to Say. Well, welcome to episode one of A Lot to Say podcast. I'm really excited to be putting this out there. Uh, my first guest is Callum Preston. I'm really chuffed to have Callum involved and we've done a few things over time, which we'll talk about throughout the episode. If you receive a business card from Callum Preston, it's going to categorize him as just one thing and that's a professional person. Um, and by way of that, he's he's many things. Um, he's a designer, painter, illustrator, set designer, uh, videographer, and many many other things all packaged up into one unexplainable form, I guess. Um, Callum messes with the definition of a freelance creative as he takes on projects of all sizes, mediums, from sold out solo art shows to designing restaurants, fashion branding and music album artwork sold by the thousands all around the world. Uh, I've known Callum for a bunch of years from the area we grew up in, uh, where we ran in some similar circles, to eventually collaborating on a few things years down the track, such as events, etc. He's always a pleasure to interact with, I've got to say, and he's uh, one of Australia's best talents when it comes to creative expression. uh, I'm really fortunate to know him, and I'm always um, really inspired by what he puts out there. Uh, Personally, he always makes everyone feel incredibly welcome and it's no surprise why he leaves such a you know a really positive impression on people both by his personality but then of course his uh creative output which is um which definitely embraces a diy aesthetic something i really vibe with uh he's just a decent decent person so um you know as part of this chat uh you know callum self-taught so he's prided himself on traveling the less conventional you know, DIY path when it comes to building a creative career. So we'll dive into a number of factors relating to all the numerous things he's been involved in. But for now, uh, this is Callum Preston on episode one of the Lot to Say podcast. All right. Uh, we've got Callum Preston here. Welcome to a Lot to Say podcast, Callum. Hey, Gary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Slightly romantic, you are um, the first person I've interviewed for this podcast and the one I've known the longest. So, um, yeah, well, you're a full circle. You need a, an easy get for the first one, you know? I'll be go gentle. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, I couldn't think of anyone better to have on the podcast. So, look, thanks again. We're here chatting about unconventional career paths and the projects that consume people. And you just popped into mind straight away um it's definitely based on my knowledge of what you've been wrapped up in over the years um but i've always found a lot of inspiration from you know that that real diy um repurposing and um aspects of your your projects both in the creative space for your own work and for commercial work by the same token Mm. um you've had a massive involvement in uh, the music scene um particularly within melbourne from its uh from those sort of punk hardcore sort of leanings when we both used to hang out in the art house 
Um, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your um, your sort of upbringing, Northwest Melbourne, and and what you how that sort of evolved into what you sort of first into in study wise, and then eventually where you found yourself now. Yeah, well, we you know we we were both blessed to live on on uh, you know the lucky country over in the northwest of of Melbourne. Um, <laughs> yeah. The uh, yeah, it's weird. I grew up further out even in West Meadows next to the airport. When uh, my parents moved out there, it was literally farmland and they bought, you know, some of the first development kind of blocks out there. Um, and so growing up out there, the city was truly like the city. It was the big smoke. We went, you know, if I went to the city twice a year until I was about 15, I reckon that was probably pretty bang on. Like we had no purpose to go there. The high point was more the city than uh, the city was. So uh, now, in hindsight, it's really not that far out, but, you know, the freeway systems have changed. But it meant that uh, it was kind of like growing up in a, a smaller village rather than an actual hardcore suburb of Melbourne. Um, mm. There was that separation. So, you know, uh, going to school in Keelor and Essendon, um, being closer to, you know, the city and being on the train line. But um, I was the end of the train line and then a bus. Like I was Broad Meadows line and then a bus down into West Meadows into that sort of village. So um, in a way it meant that, you, you know, also we're talking pre-internet times. So, well, early internet times at least. So it was, I'm so happy that it worked out that way for me. I, I often thought I was born in the wrong era. I go, oh, I want to, I wish I was alive in the sixties or I wish I had seen, you know, the first part of the eighties as a, as a teenager or an adult rather than being born in it because I was born in 84, but yeah, um, you know, I really, I, I would think now that I'm older and I have hindsight, I think I fell in that sweet spot where you gain knowledge from the older brothers and sisters of your friends. And it was like, um, a, you know, a secret code that was passed down through teenagers and kids about, you know, getting into music, getting into countercultures like graffiti or skateboarding or any of these things, which, you know, at an early age really pinged my aesthetic for what would carry on all the way up till now. And, and although they may not um, come out in my work or in my life exactly as they entered my life, they're always there, um, you know, and I was, I have a, a fantastic family and we had a really great upbringing there. And I had all of these friends from different groups, but my friends who I grew up with in West Meadows were like, especially special because I feel like we shared that you know, we were from that suburb and then you'd meet some kids and you'd be like, oh, that's the Gladstone Park kids and that's the <laughs> West kids. And, and that, yeah. that net grows wider and wider as you get older and then you're a teenager and you're sort of, your network stretches all the way in, you know, to the edge of the city. So you start to meet people. Um, and then you're out in the big bad world post high school, you know, you're into university and all of a sudden I'm in university with uh, people from all sides of Melbourne or people that have moved from the country or moved from interstate to come to university here. And um, yeah, you realize that everyone is kind of, is on that same path. They, wherever they grow up kind of determines a lot about them. Um, and they can choose to be a new person once they become 18 and move to a new city or they, you know, I think some people reinvent themselves after high school or, or even after primary school in different ways. But um, I've always just, really loved the journey which is yeah it's an interesting kind of hindsight to have um 
It is funny because I've seen in your the production of your work, which which we'll talk about some of your projects, but um, you literally reference your your childhood in um, you know some really nostalgia capturing ways. We'll, we'll touch on that one at the moment, but I think people have sort of termed it um, for people like us, <laughs> you know, in our age range, it's that analog childhood, digital um, adulthood, I guess, where we've sort of we've we've gotten right to the precipice of the end of high school without much internet, and then all of a sudden sort of started to come into fruition um, and a heavy influence in our lives. So um, I guess kept curious um, straight after. Yeah. And I feel like seeing the, you know, uh, what do they say? Like, you know, seeing how, how things are made is what makes you truly understand their value. And seeing the incident when we were in school, even I can remember, you know, very early high school, them saying one day you, you know, you'll submit all your work via electronic, you know, whatever. And I was going, this is crazy. No way. And now it's, you know, it's all in our pocket on our phones. And I think that I have a more of an appreciation because I remember having to type each letter of a text message with three clicks on a button, you know, and I remember having dial up that would get interrupted every time the phone rang and, and all those things. So yeah, it's always, I think it's a perfect sum up is, you know, analog childhood, digital adulthood, because it's given us the power to harness the creativity of that when everything wasn't readily available, but also, you know, explore it digitally now. So yeah. Um, But yeah, that was growing up. Growing up was outside dirty in creeks, in drains, in, you know, finding trouble, finding adventure, um, playing with things we shouldn't have been and just, you know, um, thankfully, getting out alive and being safe and um you know now watching friends of mine i grew up with who have kids of their own that are they're the next so the next generation it's scary you know when you talk to um friends and they go yeah my my son is now seven and him and, and i'm like in five years time you're gonna be i don't know using find my iphone to try and figure out where the hell they are because when we were that age no one knew where we were like it's it's pretty wild might, might just ping directly into their brains through some neural pathway or something. Yeah, Who knows? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. When they teleport them from their good behaviour bond, you know. Rather yeah, than yeah, that. yeah. That's right. <laughs> on the um, on that, I guess that journey. I mean, with um, if we're talking about you know that being exposed to the internet, um, which is obviously um, curiosity and knowledge. Um, how do you think that? you would have gone into, I guess, some further study, which I'm sort of aware of. But um, did you sort of find that time was, um, is it more shaping in terms of, I guess, the career stuff or is it more about that you were exposed to more counterculture? So obviously access to more music that we could, you know, illegally, legally download. Um, and then also a lot of your, I guess, your influences and peers that, that has manifested in a lot of your work. So skateboarding, um, music, mm-hmm. DIY and more. I feel like leading into leading out of high school, if I, if the internet was at the stage it's at now, I would understand a lot more about what careers were. Cause I literally finished high school and I selected out of the big guide that used, you know, used to give you an, an actual, like a phone book that would have yep. all the different courses. Yep, yep. And I was, you know, I was just choosing off the list and going like, uh, textile design. That sounds kind of cool. I guess that's making t-shirts. Okay. And like, choosing these things and photography and um, I ended up studying advertising, but I really didn't know what advertising meant. I kind of thought, yeah, I draw billboards or I write radio ads and it it was those things, but it was also so much else. Uh, And I was really flying quite blind, which is 
unless you know I want to be an accountant or I want to I want to work in you know I want to do medicine or I want to do law they were a bit more cut and dry but creatively the descriptions of programs was so kind of vague to me at least I feel like now you can understand by researching what you know what does a creative director do or who is a director of photography versus being an actual director or you know all the different roles so if you're interested in film or design or television you can explore the difference between you know a graphic designer or a creative director etc so um yeah that's one thing that i kind of do wonder about like would i have taken a different path if i understood more of what those jobs meant but at the same time for me university was probably less about learning a specific skill that i was studying and much more about being exposed more to the world of of all of those things so meeting people from uh, different age brackets even because I was studying in a course that had people of different ages in my advertising course um, and meeting you know jaded old industry heads who had resorted back to teaching and lecturing at university for it um, and hearing these kind of war stories of you know how the industry worked and you know being a junior and coming up and all this stuff and kind of realizing like I'm not interested in doing that but I can see all of these things we're learning how that can apply to my passion at the moment and that passion was being in a band and playing shows and trying to tour. So um, I sort of applied what I was learning at university to market, you know, mustard and cap cars and <laughs> took that same concept and applied it to the band. And at the same time, 2002, 2003 was the boom of sort of street art in Melbourne, the launch of stencil art and stencil revolution, which was a big website at the time and all of these things that were coming up. And I had dived headfirst into that scene as well. Um, and I was seeing it as, you know, I guess it was kind of early then uh, as far as being used so widely now, but viral marketing was uh, stencils for, you know, some of the first stuff that ever became viral marketing, I think in Melbourne was probably like the original Grand Theft Auto had like street stencils that were sprayed on the footpath and yep. there would Remember be, that. yeah. And there'd be like bill posters for things. And it was usually through an agency like vice or or someone like that who was really on the cutting edge of doing that stuff um or having a, a famous you know famous graffiti artist painting a billboard there was a vodka campaign that had um, murder and fibs where they printed a billboard at full size set up a scaffold and the, the artists vandalized it but in situ and it became an extension of the printed ad and i remember thinking like this is this is this is the type of advertising that i enjoy um, and seeing it and going like, well, that's the kind of stuff we can do to promote the band. So we can, um, you know, I can make big posters and rather than handing them out at the show, I'll paste them up on the wall across from the art house and then people will see them when they're there and, you know, convincing Missing Link to let me do a window display for our in-store there where I got a bunch of old instruments that were all broken and made like a smashed pile of instruments and put flyers up for our in-store, which was upcoming. Um, and I was just making it up really. Like I was literally 18 just trying to figure that stuff out. But now I look at it and I kind of go, Oh, that wasn't bad. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it was, I, I was, th I was thinking freely cause I was kind of had my head so far up my own ass that I was kind of like, this is a good idea. I'm just doing it. I'm going for it. And I didn't really feel judged Yeah, because, um, we were in our own lane and that was really fun. But you know, some of the stuff I look at and go, my God, that is, terrible you know the early 2000s there was a lot of design crime going on it was some bad <laughs> it's a bad style but at the same time you know you got to start somewhere so 
Well, and I vividly remember when um, when Roan was uh, starting to paste up, um, you know, on, on the sides of buildings, especially around near the art house. I vividly remember that time. But um, yep. I guess for yourself as well, um, intuition and a, um, a willingness to just sort of experiment um, and I guess carve your own niche, yeah. um, which is funny because you referenced recently in an event where you said, you know, you're not looking to um, fit into anything. You're looking to carve out your own thing uh, continuously. So always sort of kept that in mind. But, yeah, I, I think I've just always noticed that about you. You, you will always um, adjust and whether it's in the, the band's work um, based on the merch you're producing for yourself or others mm-hmm. or obviously in your um, advertising work, your, your own creative projects. Yeah. It just seems to be this creative freedom of expression that you keep um, latching on to new opportunities as they come up, whatever that may be. Yeah, and I, I think that it's funny, like I've, I've been lucky enough to work with some really big brands and, and brands that I looked up to as a kid, whether they're like skate world kind of brands or, or bands even. Um, and I approach them the same way that I have always approached everything. And I kind of, I just think of them as like, what did, what did 15 year old me want to see in an ad for Vans or what did, what did I want to see if, if I was to be going to an event for something and I'm, I've been tasked with uh, designing an installation for it. Like what would have blown my mind and had an effect on me. So applying that. And then t- it's funny being on a, you know, part of a counterculture being like um, hardcore and punk or whether it's skateboarding or whatever, the norm, the normal stream will always find its way there eventually. Like everything that is extreme will in 10 years be not extreme anymore. And that's why we end up with, um, you know, he- newspaper headlines, 15 years ago were about, you know, the scrounge of street art and graffiti in Melbourne. And now you have tourism, Victoria paying graffiti artists to paint murals in like in country towns and bringing people tourism by doing silo art, things like that. So yeah, there's, there's a, there's always a working circle. And I kind of, I found that, um, you know, I've gone on to work with some brands that are, uh, you know, truly bizarre things, you know, working on things for TV, like the block, which is, you know, very uh, reality TV kind of concepts and approaching it um, with approaching it with the same exact mind that I approached everything with when I was 17 and working on marketing my band or designing for the mm. band. Um, yep. And, and it's funny, like no one ever asks for your qualification. No one ever asks, you know, what, I, what I studied or how I, you know, w- what my company, how it was founded or whatever. I, I work on these big kind of building sites and it's like, well, there's the electricians and there's the, the, there's the floor guys and here's the carpenters. And I'm there, you know, once they're finished doing their thing, making a huge mural on the wall and they kind of go, Oh, you know, who do you work for? And I go, just me. And they go, how did you end up doing this? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> they go, well, did you used to paint houses? And I go, no. And it's sort of become this really, I, I realize I always have to pinch myself and realize how lucky I am to have slipped through the cracks enough to get to do my own thing the way I want to do it to an extent. There's always, you know, there's always bending and, 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 um, yeah, for sure. To suit and especially in the corporate setting. But, um, yeah, it's, I've been super lucky to have kind of not really had an official job ever. It's always just been variations of the same shit that I was doing when I was 15. And from that commercial side, I mean, you've worked with groups, oh, let me try and rattle them off. It's Vans, um, Marvel, Collingwood Football Club, Google, um, 
the block uh, converse. Who else am I missing? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, in those kind of jobs, it's so weird. I always find myself going like, this is crazy. How, how can I be tasked with working for, you know, whatever, any one of those you name. And then you, when you go in and meet these people, you realize that you're meeting with some person that is the head of marketing or they're the head of visuals or whatever. And they are just, just like us. They're just, they're people that have worked their way towards this job. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're coming to you to lend your expertise. Um, You know, they don't, uh, you know, you go to a dentist to get dental work done. And so they're, they're coming to a creative person to have my creativity input into it. So I've always tried to make those relationships really mutually beneficial where I probably over deliver and, and give too much of myself with my um, input and having going, Hey, that, you know, I love this idea that you have for this thing on the block, but I was thinking we could, you know, twist it a little and really go all out and blow it up with this thing. And um, yeah, it's, it's always about knowing how to charge for that kind of work because that's right. yeah. it's a balance because I want to do the work, but I also want to do the work in a good way. So if what the client is bringing to me is not great, but it is for a great brand or a high profile brand, then I'm always willing to put in extra of my own creative ideas to make it something that I think is even better. Cause I want to be proud of the work I'm putting out and, and I, you know, if I'm getting something that's going to be on national TV or in a national campaign or whatever, I want to be like able to shout, you know, like that's me. I did this rather than kind of go like, eh, it's their idea. I just executed it. You know? Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. So, I think we'll, we'll definitely reference actually um, the value placed on artists uh, really soon in a segue <laughs> with one of the questions, but I want to, I want to step back just a little bit um, it's going to be real weird. It's going to be uh, both talking about the music days and maybe an office reference <laughs> or chucked yeah. in there. But I want to go back to um, the music scene. So we're talking about a, a common place that we both loved and, and um, grew up in you far more than I, but, but it was certainly a massive part of our um, growing up and that's the art house in Melbourne. Yes. Um, and the office reference that I sort of uh, alluded to was, I guess, um, you know, Andy Menard basically says in one of the episodes, you know, it, you know, I wish someone could have told us it was the good old days, you know, while we were right in them. Yeah. But I did, but I did listen to a podcast um, that you were on very recently talking about um, cover art and you were talking about the people you were surrounding yourself with and how you were right in the midst of this emerging scene um, that has some now, you know, truly global bands and you were just roughing around with them, creating bespoke um, designs, some ripped off from sort of pop culture. Yeah. Reference points. So do you want to talk us through a little bit about that time and how you sort of keep conscious or cognizant of what you're surrounded by and, and what you're getting involved in um, as yeah. you just did with the brands? Well, I mean, and there's no, there's truly no way to know. And I think, cause I often used to think like, man, I wish I lived in New York city in 1980 when hip hop and graffiti culture was like at its highest point to be right in amongst it or to, you know, have been at CBGB's when the Ramones were playing, you know, all that you can, you can name off a million things or, you know, being, being uh, some merch dude in, in Seattle in 1990 and meeting a little band called Nirvana or whatever the hell it is. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we always put such, such high praise on these, like these touchstones, but yeah, then as we discussed, like I, I realized I've been super lucky to be amongst a couple of things which were really in their, um, you know, 
embryonic stages and, and then really grew to be something bigger. One of them being Australian heavy music, hardcore Melbourne, um, being, you know, quite a big mark in that it had been going for long before I arrived in any kind of, um, purpose. And, but it's funny, the first sort of four to five years of me having turned 18 and going to the art house was such a, like, I feel like 15 years worth of stuff happened in that four years. And it's sort of bands really grew and exploded and Parkway Drive would probably be one of the main, the main one, or definitely would be the main one out of that. But a lot of the bands and a lot of the people involved with that scene went on to do amazing things. Um, and so we were, you know, I was, we were playing and supporting Parkway when they would play at the art house to 200 people or, or not even selling it out or whatever. Uh, and now they are literally one of the premier like festival headliner bands in the heavy music world playing over bands like Slayer at festivals in Europe. And it's just yep. crazy. Um, 50,000 people at a time. Yeah, so. exactly. And the other, the other part of that would be, um, you know, leaving the, my, my suburb, my suburban bubble and getting into the city um, in first year university and also to attend things like the art house and discovering more about this graffiti and street art scene that I had studied from afar, basically from the train line as a kid, catching the train in high school into obese records in Paran to buy spray paint because that was one of the only places and, you know, playing around with graffiti in my teenage years. But then sort of finding this sort of street art uh, thing in, in O2 um, and discovering this sort of, yeah, it had this so much of a DIY kind of feel because there was, I didn't just see it. It wasn't just uh, graffiti or tagging or stenciling, but it, it had a whole kind of scene around it. There was zine making and there was paste ups and there was people documenting it through photography and film even um, doing videos and, and interesting stuff. And then, you know, seeing it carry over to these exhibitions and there'd be little exhibitions in shitty little upstairs rooms at, at like bars on Smith street and stuff and going there and seeing, um, seeing graffiti writers and people with, uh, you know, jackets with painted panels on the back with amazing pieces and, and kind of realizing that it, it had its own little microcosm going on that had existed long before I arrived. But the boom of that Melbourne street art was really that 2002 to 2006 or seven, again, like 15 years worth of stuff happened in that time. And that was all around the world, really. That was Banksy exploding. That was, um, you know, Shepherd Ferry really exploding. Uh, that was the mainstream starting to prick up its ears at it. And you started to see influence coming into, you know, the early times of um, Pharrell and NERD and uh, Kanye and all, as all these artists emerged. And then you have the streetwear boom, which is inherently tied to street culture, which graffiti and street art is a part of. Um, it was, yeah, it's crazy how many of those things are connected. And I'm not saying that Melbourne and, and specifically the scene I was involved in was the center of that, but it was definitely part of that network. And we were being recognized from other parts of the world as being, you know, uh, a real, a real highlight for that. And still to this day, you know, Melbourne is considered one of the great sort of street art cities of the world. Um, and I've been lucky enough to travel to loads of cities and generally exploring that sort of culture. Like it really does stand up. It's not a, um, it's yeah. not a biased opinion to say that Melbourne and Australia specifically has a really strong culture in that, um, 
So I've been very lucky to be kind of in a couple of different spots where, yeah, exactly as Andy Bernard noted or, uh, um, you know, and it, the, you're living in it, but you, it's hard to pay attention to when you're 19 years old and, you know. That's right. You just want more. You want to see more. You want to do more. You want things to be happening faster. But then you kind of get to an older age where things process takes time and you have you sort of understand more about how things move and you realize like, shit, that was like we were just doing it because there was no money. There was no sort of fame involved with any of that stuff. Um, no one knew that that band would become such a big band or, you know, that these, and everyone wants to talk about like ticket sales and numbers and record sales and, and money, but everyone was just doing like people were piling in. We were piling into shitty hire vans with five additional mates getting to a venue playing, driving back home overnight to play again, you know, um, big borrowing and stealing for everything to kind of make it work. But there was never really a, you know, we never even paid for our, we always paid for our own food. <laughs> we weren't even like, yeah. you know, the, the, the band money paid for the petrol in the van if we were lucky. And then, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was, it was just a collection of experiences, wasn't it? It's mm. just, there's this underlying, you all understand that you're just gathering experiences. You obviously, I mean, if it's in terms of the playing, playing in the band, like you, yeah, you want to play well and, and yeah. do well and gather fans, but you almost at the drop of the hat, you would um, sort of say yes to any opportunity that came up that was like, this would be good for me to remember at some point in my life. One thing that really always, when I, and I've been recently in going through a lot of archival stuff that I have, and I've kept a lot of stuff, which I'm really thankful for. My next, my next plan is to try and scrapbook it all so that it's a bit more organized. Cause every time I go through it, I'm really going through it. It's a pile of shit. And I really want to, kind of make it a bit more easy to flip through a book at. Um, maybe that's the adult version of, of that hoarding, you know, but um, uh, it always strikes me that like we didn't keep, there was no Google calendar. There was no like band shared. There wasn't a group text thread. I don't think group text even existed back then, but somehow we always all managed to rock up at the show. We all, everyone had all the info. We knew what time the load in was like, it just kind of happened. And we would say yes to gigs in other cities and, we would end up there, but I don't, you know, I, and I was kind of key organizer on a lot of that stuff, but I found, you know, I found, I found all these receipts and documents for vans and uh, even some flights to go to Perth, but like booked by people like booked in my parents' name, booked in my brother's name, like, cause you know, I wasn't old enough to drive that van. So getting someone who was old enough to sign on and then we'd take the van and it's, yeah, it's kind of crazy that it even happened. And, and we were in, you know, we were in the internet world. I can't imagine what it was like 15, 20 years before that or the original kind of, you know, the minor threat era of yeah. touring to these cities where, you know, you're calling ahead. I mean, I even called ahead to Brisbane on a telephone to get addresses, to send flyers, to have other people put them up for us. And this is the early 2000s. So, you know, now it's it's obviously a lot different, but that's the thing. That's another one of those, ah, oh, man, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but that work is like, it seemed like annoying work at the time, but it's really, it's so wholesome. There's something to it. Yeah, certainly. Even the mail order catalogs to order merch by having a piece of paper, tick the things, yep. um, go to the bank, get a money order, send it, post it in and hope that it came to you. Totally. And no, no, no preview streaming of the new song by some band. It's like the record comes out on this day and I've already pre-ordered it and I'm getting it. Like, I don't know what's on it, but... I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, a quick overview. So you um, 
you essentially, you were involved with uh, numerous bands, both your own, Her Nightmare, um, and many others you were um, a part of. Mm-hmm. And then also developing merch for groups like, um, you know, Parkway Drive, Deez Nuts, and that sort of heavy sort of space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously segueing into um, some different musical styles. Um, Luca Brasi, Something for Kate, you were starting to do a lot more um, branching out, not necessarily out of your comfort zone, but definitely outside of, um, I guess, an insular punk hardcore environment. Yeah. Yeah, there was, and I mean, I after my time, like kind of in the, in the depths of hardcore, hardcore and hardcore only, but I was always listening to these other kind of genres as well. But, you know, there was this sort of, this, uh, I don't know what, it's, I mean, it's definitely punk music, but the rise of sort of the Poison City kind of side of Melbourne music, which were tied hand in hand with the art house as well, but it was kind of just on opposing nights to the different styles. Um, mixed bills weren't really that much of a thing in that period of the 2000s. so but I was always a fan of that side of the music as well. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of found myself reaching more into that, which then it, it all led down different paths. And then randomly I would kind of get hit up by, cause it stopped, it didn't stop, but it started being that some of these bands were breaching into um, management companies and booking agencies and stuff. And then all of a sudden you realize like, Oh, it's not about the style of music. It's about providing a service. So this management company would have their hardcore bands, but they'd also have their sort of more emo rock bands. And then they'd have bands touring international bands who were, didn't fit either of those categories. Um, And then you realize that there's a whole world of work in this sort of touring world. So I was driving for, like I drove for Tegan and Sarah to the Falls Festival and I drove for Donovan Frankenrider and I worked on creator tours and stuff just as a Melbourne sort of person, I was literally, you know, picking up vans and picking up gear and picking up people or picking up, you know, the, the roadies from the hotel. I drove for Slipknot, different, like ridiculous kind of things. But there's this sort of underground army of people that work behind the scenes. And, you know, and those are the people right now, especially with this lockdown, that that industry is decimated by, by the shutdown of events. So unless you've kind of been involved in it, I don't think people realize the scale of how many people work behind the scenes on a big show. When you go to a big concert, you go, oh yeah, there's security guards and whatever, but there's so many levels to all of that stuff. Um, Absolutely. Yep. So that was really eye opening as, you know, a 19, 20, 21 year old to kind of get involved with that um, and just start meeting more people, which pit, yeah, always being around, always saying yes and being uh, trying to prove myself meant that I kind of got, yeah, I kind of got occasionally would get hit up by people for certain design things. And then I, without really realizing it, I lived overseas for a couple of years and I kind of had, um, that was Seattle. Seattle. I lived in Seattle where my, my girlfriend at the time, my now wife was from. And, um, I, you know, you go away, you come back, you get a little bit older and the scene moves on and there's different, you know, there's a new generation of bands through and, and, although I was self-identifying as, you know, strictly kind of hardcore design person. Um, I, yeah, I was kind of getting hit up by different bands and, and people from hardcore that I knew had just moved into music industry in general, which meant people in marketing and PR, people in label management who they knew me because we had hung out at the art house and hardcore shows, but they were now yeah. managing, you know, essentially uh, pop acts or alt rock bands or singer songwriters or whatever it is. So that that opened more doors um, to different work and 
yeah, I was never against that kind of work. It just wasn't ever coming my way. Um, yeah. The other work that was, was sort of parallel to that was uh, fashion stuff. So as I said before, that the countercultures always go full circle and become mainstream. So you have, I was getting sent mood boards from um, clothing brands, like brands that you would find in Maya and, um, you know, Surf, Dive and Ski, whatever they are, Fresh Jive, Mossimo and those kind of things. Um, and the mood boards would have, you know, oh, you know, we think skulls might be kind of cool for this season. And, <laughs> and, and they would have a Google image search of a bunch of skulls. And then in, the, in that, I would see, you know, a Parkway Drive design that I had done or, you know, a couple of these things. And that starts filtering through and you realize like what they're after is band merch from five years ago, really, because that's the sort of, that's the time frame that it, it grows on. So, um, and that's why you get, you know, very normal people that may never have been to a, a show or whatever wearing a brand shirt that they've purchased at a, at a store that looks like a, it almost looks like a show flyer. And it's like, how did, how did that end up happening? This isn't a person that likes attending shows, but it's all, um, yeah, it's strange how that, that cycle works. Um, yeah, it's really funny. But so I, I did a lot of that uh, type of work and that was, that was my first real taste of doing design work that actually paid some money. You know, these band, these band shirts were always for mates and mates of mates and it was 50 bucks here, 100 bucks there. And then yeah. realizing like, oh, if I string a bunch of those together, it kind of becomes something. And then if I add in a few of these... Uh, these designs for, you know, Everlast and Slazenger and weird brands that I kind of, you know, I have no idea on. I ended up doing stuff for Target um, and like making kids wear and all this kind of stuff. But I always got to do it with my own style. So I was, yeah. you know, I was drawing like shirts for Target boys age three to six that had like lyrics from Black Flag tied into the, the artwork or, you know, I'd be adding like little there'd be like, I did a shirt once it never got up, but it had like a, a full on burning church in the background, <laughs> like yeah. this kind yeah. of like black metal illustration-y thing. And it was for like a Halloween spooky shirt for like little kids wear for Kmart or whatever. Um, yeah. Just strange, strange to think like where it ends up leading you. And occasionally I'll be somewhere randomly and see someone wearing a shirt for one of those very generic kind of brands. Yep. And I go, holy shit that, you know, I did that 15 years ago when I was in, and at that time I was, you know, I was doing that design on my shitty laptop in the van driving from Sydney to Newcastle because I had a deadline, but I was also still focused on like being in a band and touring and doing whatever. And so, yeah, it's really interesting when I look at my work, I can kind of timestamp it a little with where I was at in my life, you know? I guess you can sort of um, also be, you know, pretty aware of the, um, the absurdity of some of it as well <laughs> oh, over time. I mean, you're talking about designing, um, you know, target range and then, you know, at some point beyond that, you're, um, you're painting an entire Sea Shepherd vessel that's um, yeah. sailing around the world. It's just yeah. uh, immense. I, um, yeah, that was, that was a very like humbling experience, you know, meet, meeting, I kind of knew about Sea Shepherd a little bit and then, um, through my, through my wife, my girlfriend at the time, but when we came to Australia, she knew she used to live with a guy when she was 19. Um, there was a big share house and a bunch of them all lived together in New York city. And he was like, a, a sometime hairdresser kind of, uh, 
you know, fixed gear bicycle, 20 year old New Yorker in 2004, just like a cool guy. Um, and then she's like, yeah, my friend is like, he's flying helicopter. Like he learned how to fly a helicopter and he works for the Sea Shepherd and they're out there doing this stuff. And so through that, I kind of met a lot of the Sea Shepherd people and they're pirates, you know, it's crazy. Like that I was meeting all these people who were my age that are like, yeah, we just got back. We were out for three months and we did this and here's footage of us like crashing into whaling vessels. And, um, and that was sort of like, I'd been vegetarian for years and years at that point, but it was also one of those things where I'm like, Oh wow. The, the action of being vegetarian versus the, the physical action of putting yourself between an animal and a, and a hunter is such a, a, a grander scale. So when, when the, um, you know, and they were like, oh man, you got, you get to do designs for Parkway Drive? And I'm like, you guys, <laughs> you guys literally crash a boat into people yeah, like, to yeah. save well, you know? And so they're like, oh, would you want to paint on the side of the boat? And I was like, yeah, I'd be honored to. And they're like, oh, okay. So they, um, I helped them. I, uh, they had some, like a sponsorship team who managed to get the paint donated by a, a company. And um, yes, I, I got to paint teeth on the side of this, boat these huge teeth um that boat i think it's that one has actually just been decommissioned sadly but it the, the teeth lived on it for like six years and it went out on a bunch of campaigns and um yeah that's just like an amazing everyone i know that was on that it's just like such a crazy such a crazy like life experience to have to absolutely yeah well, it, let's let's talk about some of the life experiences with your actual um I guess your exhibitions, which is something that a lot of people would have become well aware of you, um, the artist or creator. I mean, mm. you label yourself as a professional person, so it's um, yeah. pretty yeah. easy to not not pigeon yourself, pigeonhole yourself too much. Mm. So over the last few years, you've delivered a Back to the Future exhibition, a Milk Bar exhibition, um, and one just very recently um, focused on nostalgia. Did you want to talk us through... Um, those briefly like how they yeah. came to be and how each one is segued into the next well it's weird because uh i like to make things i like to make art but i don't i don't really see myself as a white wall gallery kind of person like it's not that kind of artwork but i also want to make things that people would want to have in their own homes as well um and so I started kind of exploring that and I'd, I'd always had stuff in group shows since like 2003, I'd been putting pieces into group shows, which had always happened throughout Melbourne. And I was in, you know, the Melbourne stencil festival in like 04, 05. Uh, but it wasn't, yeah, until 2015 was when I did my, my first solo show, my proper solo solo show, which was the back to the future show. Um, that was, it sort of felt like it was time to try and, and step up a little bit and do something a bit bigger that was my own. Um, I'd worked a bunch with, with Roan uh, and he, you know, he's very wise and always been a great uh, advisor. And he was like, you know, I, I love having you do this stuff with me and I want to continue doing that, but you also need to be growing your own career as well. Like um, he's like, I don't want to just take advantage of you and have you be my assistant forever. Like you have a, a skill as well. So it was really great to like, feel like, yeah, I think, I think I do deserve to like, do my own show but what is that what does that look like for me um and that kind of manifested in like a very pop culture heavy exploration of back to the future um and the works on the walls were cool like they were good and i i sold a bunch of them which is great but 
I decided to build a replica of the DeLorean at full scale in the middle of the gallery out of hard rubbish and wood. Um, I'd built a few bits and pieces before then. I'd worked on even some fit outs for some bars and restaurants, which is all just self-taught carpentry. It's not, you know, um, it's not, I'm not a trained carpenter, but I, I can get away with, I'm more probably handy more than I am a builder. I'm kind of handy. Yeah. But, um, I realized like, you know, when I would do stuff, I would go, yeah, you want to, you want a cabinet with some doors and I would do it and I, I could, you know, make it passable, but I'd go, it's got its quirks, but that's how, that's, that's, my, that's what it came out like. That's why I made it. And I realized like with my own artwork, like building the DeLorean, however it comes out, that's how it was meant to come out. There's no like, there's no uh, blueprint. You know, I wanted mine to be made out of junk. It's always going to look like it's made out of junk and I just get to do it in my style. So doing the DeLorean was the first like larger scale uh, sculptural work, I guess you'd call it. And I did it and it, it just felt so good. It felt so cool to make something that was real life. It was over the top. It was bigger than it should have been. It was like more extreme. It, it made people stop and go like, what the hell? Like, how did this end up happening? And that was the real, that sort of wow factor and having people kind of, um, people didn't ask why they just asked how, and they were excited to see it. And they, they kind of, it captured people's imagination a bit. And that's how I feel when I go to big shows or, you know, when I'd been to stuff, um, in 05 and 07 and 08 traveling in America and London and going to exhibitions and seeing installations that were, they were bigger than just a canvas on a wall. There was a lot going on and whether it was something that you actually walk through or you can touch and mess around with. And I realized that's really, that's a key part of my work is having things be interactive. And also, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Having this sort of, if I'm gonna go, if I'm gonna build a DeLorean, I could have built it at half scale. I could have built it at three quarter scale, but why not make it full size and you can climb in it and you can, and it has lights on it and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So that feeling led to the second big show, which was my, it feels like, sorry to cut you off, but yeah. it feels like, you know, an unfortunate side effect was that, you know, people might've seen you as the back to the future guy now, when in reality yes. it was more, much more that expression through something really tactile and interactive. Yeah, um, that sort of dictated the next piece of work. And yeah, Back to the Future was, you know, it is and was a love of mine, but that sh for that show, that was the vessel, but it was definitely for me much more about the idea that it was an object rather than an object from Back to the Future. So I kind of kept exploring that and I sort of thought, you know, what did I love about doing that show? And I, I did love the throwback kind of nostalgia of it, but it inherently feels a little bit dirty when it's attached to a, an intellectual property that is, is really a marketable property. You know, back to the future is a licensed brand. There's, there's, you know, all of this attachment to Hollywood and movies through it. And as much as I still love that, I sort of stepped back and thought, what do I, what really brings me joy that is, well, a inherently like kind of identifies as Australian. I really, I really, um, you know, as much as I watched back to the future as a kid, that wasn't the Australian experience of growing up in the suburbs. And I sort of explored that more. And that led me to the milk bar, which is sort of the most localized version of suburban experience that I could think of. Uh, and I had a direct connection because I worked in a milk bar when I was 12 years old. So yeah, um, yeah that show ended up manifesting as a, originally I thought, what if I make a bunch of the products from the milk bar as wooden sculptures and we kind of hang them on a wall 
So it's like looking at a bunch of stuff from a shop. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to make some of the stuff from the shop, why don't I make the actual shop and then make all of the stuff in the shop? So it ended up being a um, four and a half meter by three and a half meter sized shop front that it, that is you walk inside of. And it had 500 individual items in there, which were all cut out of plywood and hand painted. So you walked into, essentially it was like walking into a cartoon. It was sort of, it was like being inside Roger Rabbit or something where it, you know, you're a real human, but you're interacting with these things that are accurate enough to, you know what they are, but they're not right. And they have, you know, they're weirdly proportioned and they have a weight to them. You can touch and, and see things and feel them, but it's yeah, very strange. It's almost like being in a, in a, a walking dream of what a milk bar would be like from your, from the nineties, I guess. Yeah, and we get to see, I guess, um, you know, little, again, always with the Easter eggs or the additional touches, you know, cigarettes behind the counter, graffiti on the back of the um, yeah. the milk bar itself, you know, stocks, freezer. Um, yeah. And then, and then, and then yourself and, um, and your partner Mo, you know, you know, staffing it. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, she got into amazing character for it. It was so cool. Like, and, and she didn't even, grow, you know, she's from America, so she didn't grow up with that Australian culture, but, I think that I just banged on about it so long that she really understood what it meant to be that, you know, I mean, it is, it is a general store, a, a corner shop, that idea. And so that really is what brought it to life. The people being inside it is what turned it from a weird idea and an art exhibition into it really brought it alive. And, and that really cemented for me um, that, that I had, I'd chosen the right thing, but also that this is what I want to do. I want people to come into a show and feel something they want to, I want them yeah. to, cause I would have, you know, like the grumpy kind of dad with his kid who's been crying and whatever. And um, the family's all there checking it out. And, and I'd kind of, I'd be looking around and go like, Oh, this dude, this dude's here, but he's not loving it. And then he'd kind of, he'd say, Oh, you the artist. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, my grandma had a milk bar. I used to hang out there after school and I go, Oh yeah. And he'd say, we had a pinball and like not necessarily go like, I love your work, but he would say, yeah, we had a pinball machine in the corner of our, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. You smoke cigarettes out the back of it. Okay, cool. And like, it just broke people down. Some people came in and were just like, I love it. It's the best. This is amazing. And take photos of everything. But even the quiet people, like they found something to enjoy in it. And I really, um, I really appreciated people letting themselves, you know, be part of it. Some people got even emotional or overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I did, really I did cool. notice also like a decent, um, and, and obviously you toured the, the milk bar itself as well. And, yeah. a, and the hefty element of it was um, interacting with, with the kids. So making it a li- yeah. little less um, art gallery exclusive and, and more, well, for the people, I guess you could say, but you know, you, I know you've done the artist in residence um, type thing at, at high schools of late, but how was that experience? I guess taking an exhibition, a physical exhibition steeped in nostalgia on the road to rural towns and then having a bunch of kids in, interact with it in really playful ways. Yeah. Well, so far it's been to um, Benella, Hamilton and Swan Hill, all of which have great um, galleries, regional galleries and, we were lucky enough to get some funding to be able to bring it to those towns and it stayed there for a month in each one over the course of about two years. It sort of did. Yeah. Um, and it will, it will tour again. That's the plan. Obviously those plans have changed now, but um, there's interest for it in even some other States as well, but bringing it to those towns was great because regional towns 
were sort of, some of them even still have them, but regional towns had things like a milk bar for much longer than the inner city did because they didn't have the influx of 7-Eleven and 24-hour shell and all these kind of things. So it was a lot of parents bringing kids and kind of saying, you know, when I was a kid, this is what it was like and blah, blah, blah. But it's so colourful and so bright and so much like a kid's playset that kids inherently enjoyed it anyway. So it was a way to get them in and keep them excited so their parents could enjoy, their parents, grandparents and great-grandparents even at some stages could enjoy the milk bar. Even though my version was a sort of 90s milk bar, I had people who grew up in the 70s or the 50s telling me their stories about, you know, oh, we used to go to the milk bar and, you know, it only had one type of lolly or we would buy the milk from the milkman and you know then you have the 80s kids being like yeah it was all big m's and drumsticks and whatever um but the kids were always really into it and so by introducing an element of uh coloring in of diy of them having something to do meant that they really they really got involved and then i really wanted to display their work as part of the show so i would build a stock room essentially which is a wall in the gallery and all of the things that they coloured in, these different packaging designs of foods from the milk bar would get displayed in the gallery. So I have a collection of hundreds and hundreds of these amazing colourings with kids from all over the state who have done them, which is really cool. And there were pretty choice ones in there, weren't there? Yeah, well, kids would... I would, I would sort of fend them against each other, but I would have school groups come in and I'd say the last group, they really nailed it. They did the weirdest kind of flavours and versions of food that I've seen. So I don't know if you guys can do anything that weird inherently they'd be like we can be weirder than them so that they end up with like bacon and eggs flavored pepsi max and like yeah 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 they were doing weird weird stuff it was really cool don't stifle the kids you know like just let them run wild um we've got a few just a few last things to get through but um everything is borrowed was um one of the most recent exhibitions and again steeped in heavy nostalgia yeah that was probably a more like um sentimental or like more of a probably a more serious tone, definitely a more serious tone than the milk bar, but I really wanted to explore not only um, nostalgia and memory and, and the, the value of objects that aren't actually valuable in a dollar's sense, but looking at, um, looking at objects that we hold onto and the knickknacks that we kind of carry. Everyone has sort of a few things somewhere that someone passed down to them or they picked up on their travels somewhere and, it kind of, if you grabbed like five things, you could kind of tell a little bit about every person if you just chose, if you let them choose five things that meant something to them, it would sort of illustrate that. So I wanted to do a series of paintings based on that. Some of them were objects that meant a lot to me personally. Others were more generic objects that I pictured could um, kind of work for the masses. Um, And I also wanted to explore doing work in a setting that people could picture the milk bar was great, but it was 500 individual items and a whole store, which didn't allow for people to actually own a piece of that. Or if they connected to something, they weren't able to sort of take something home. So everything is borrowed. I wanted to explore creating my work in a, um, a canvas format, like a format that you would hang in your house. But because of the style of things I do, canvas didn't suit. It was too clean and too, too perfect. So I actually created all the works, all the canvases in the show were made from recycled uh, timber hoardings from building sites, from scrap yards that I'd found around. And I'd sort of, um, yeah, kind of cut and pasted those together into these different formats so that the texture of the wood and the, the aging and the, you know, some of them were rotten, rotted away or damaged or 
completely dried out by the sun or whatever, that really lent to the subject matter. When I painted something on it, it inherently felt a little bit older. It felt more worn. It felt like a, um, you know, a painting of a trophy wasn't just a painting of a trophy. It was this trophy that felt like it had years of being stuffed into boxes and moved between houses and all these kind of things. So yeah, it was really good to, um, to explore that work as a, as a collection. Um, and then in doing that, I built myself a studio in the middle of the gallery where that show was, uh, so that people could come and see the process. Cause I was, at, it was, it was an art show, but I was artist in residence for a month um, at the KSR gallery in, in the Rialto, which was brilliant. Yeah. That was fascinating as well because it was, yeah, it's a way of, um, well, KSR, so King Street Revival. So, um, yeah, essentially a gallery in the base of a, what's traditionally known as an office building. So a fascinating environment. I guess it's not too um, unusual for you, though, being that you've started to, I guess, populate or, or inhabit um, unconventional spaces with a lot of your work. But, so you're not uh, unused to, un, you know, unconventional spaces. Recently uh, accommodated also... Um, Again, a van at Can't Do Tomorrow in Kensington, which again had a um, yeah. freedom of expression attached to it, but also this massive influx of the public um, gathering around the creation, which is largely a centerpiece surrounded by all these other pieces and would obviously capture people's attention immediately. How is that process? Because it's not only the creation, you're, you're, you're engaging with the public while doing so, so heavily, which is... Um, a little stark to what other artists may do, um, which which might be a little more offhand or reserved, but you're you're writing amongst it. It's funny. I always I set myself up for that because I, when I make my ideas, I go I could do that, and then I could be in there making the stuff, and then I could like be right there, and then when it comes to the crunch of actually, you know, trying to make work in front of other people or like spending all day chatting with people in front of your work, it's quite exhausting and it's quite yeah. um quite taxing and can also lead to some creative blocks almost because you sort of, you you have a live audience almost in front of you. So you sort of start to clam up and go like, mm, is this going to be good enough? Or, you know, I uh, feel like I, you know, when you get to post something finished on Instagram and people just go, that looks great. That's a lot different to see someone seeing the initial scratchings on a page or on a board or whatever it is. And you, you kind of want to keep justifying like, oh, this is just the mock-up. Like, I'm not, I'm not done yet. I've got to do more on this. So mm. um, it's funny that I, I always paint myself into that corner. But it's because I know the value in that and people seeing that process. I really think it's important. So the ice cream truck was, um, the ice cream truck is totally, like, it found me. I didn't find it. Like, I was looking for a vehicle to make as a centerpiece. Originally, I was going to get a box truck and just build basically a mini pop-up gallery in the back of a box truck. I thought, oh, that'd be cool. It's a truck, but it's a gallery at the same time. And in look, in searching for that, I realized that was way too expensive because trucks apparently are really valuable, even when they're <laughs> completely trashed. But I found this old 1974 Bedford ice cream Mr. Whippy van that had been off the road for 20 years. Um, and uh, the guy had sort of stripped it out to nothing. It was just a shell didn't run or anything, but all the parts were there to put it back together. And, and it just had beautiful patina to it. It had been sitting in his like yeah. mechanic shop for 20 years. And yeah, so I, I decided to take that and rather than try to fix it up, make it shiny and new and turn it into a Mr. Whippy van, that would be the finished process. I kind of thought, what, what would it look like for it to be sort of the 
creative Mad Max version of that. So rather than trying to make it perfect, I, I used my very minimal welding skills and basically welded it all back together, attached it all and then went nuts painting it like with every version of uh, Mr. Whippy kind of, um, uh, you know, ice cream truck nostalgia feel with including like the bad, badly drawn bootleg characters. I had a dodgy yep. Garfield on there and a goofy and um, yeah. And really overloading it. I, it had no windshield. So instead of getting a windshield, I did a chicken wire mesh windshield and it, something about it just worked. It was like, it was all very raw and kind of weird. And um, I was really lucky. I had a really good position in the, in the show, which had, you know, over a hundred artists in the show, but um, my ice cream truck got to be a bit of a meeting point. And if you lose someone at something like that, you can say, I'll meet you back at the ice cream truck. You're always going to find that. You're inadvertently um, uh, looking after all the, yeah, the lost kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I had no real ice cream. People were getting bummed. So I ended up buying, I think I bought 300 uh, Zupa Dupas and had them frozen in a big esky in there. So I ended up giving out a lot of Zupa Dupas, but um, yeah, the truck was really fun. It's something that I always want. I always, for years have thought about like, Oh, what about getting a car and painting this? Or, you know, I've seen, I went to an exhibition in LA years ago where there was a Keith Haring car that he had painted when he was alive and, you know, painting on, on something that inherently feels like you're not allowed to paint on it is always an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, and so when I found this van, it, it has such, it's such a, a beautiful piece as it is. It's this sort of quite bubbly kind of curves, but it was all dinged up and, broken in a way and so yeah that was as soon as i painted it i was like oh, i've made the right choice it looks it looks like what i wanted it to look like um so i even got little little stickers made out of it, little cutouts of it um as well because it's such a, a cool piece so i still own that van it's in storage at the moment but um there was some interest before all this stuff happened that there was some interest from um you know some events and some some different places that were interested in you know, renting it as a, a centerpiece to use to actually serve ice cream out of or to have as sort of a central hub because it sort of serves, it's essentially like a little mini shipping container. It's just got a window that you can serve out of and some storage. So it may live again one day on the streets, um, which will be mm. so funny to see it in different contexts as well. Um, if there's, as long as there's access for a tow truck, we can, we can put it there. Absolutely. And it must be, um, I mean, it's, again just to see your your work sort of transcend the original idea and then uh, find itself in all these new ways and it's great to see people emotionally connect to it um yeah re regardless of um the the intention of use for the future just um an incredible thing whether um you know country locations for the um for the milk bar through to weather you know which um corporate gathering the, the van might pop out yeah. about to add a touch of danger you know that's a big that's a big thing with the van it was like people doing something that makes people go like how and why and where did this happen you know and, and where's it going to from here and how did it even get in here like it's a van but it's inside a building and i really love that kind of shock factor and i think it really it's going back to like trying to impress my former self trying to make an impression on myself as a teenager what would that have looked like and yeah me that was you know, there was a skateboard demo in Mooney Ponds when I was 13 years old where they had a car as one of the obstacles and it got smashed up and rolled onto its roof and it ended up decaying into like chaos. But I was just like, it's a whole car. Where do you even get a car? You know, how do you, how do you, you know, something that seems so valuable then to be not valuable. And 
So giving the van a new life was was definitely one of those. And and it, again, like the milk bar, everyone that came near it, it just made them smile. It made them feel something. It brought out stories in them about about their own experiences and nostalgia. So yeah, yeah, really no cool. doubt. Yeah. Well, look, we're gonna wrap it up with um a few thoughts. So so one, look, um, uh, do we want to uh, address this? So. Obviously, multiple projects um, on the go at any one time, let alone mm. what you produced over the years. And so, obviously, people would probably, as I'm making an assumption, the common phrase would be, "How do you find the time? Um, how do you? How are you so productive and get all this done?" Mm. So, but what's the reality of it for you um, when um, producing this work? Yeah, and that's yeah, that's always so nice to hear from people when people kind of go like, "Oh, when when do you sleep or or whatever." Um, there's a few, I mean, there's a few different levels to that, you know, uh, we don't have kids yet. <laughs> so that, that can definitely be helpful. Um, and I'm endlessly impressed by my friends that have uh, a family, a growing family or a large family, or even a small family. Cause I know how much that does change things. Um, but there's always a way to get things done, you know? Uh, but the reality is like, I, as much as I have a lot of things on the go and I always have a lot of ideas swirling in my head for sure. But, having those ideas come out of my head can be very varying states of difficulty. Sometimes they just tend to flow and things come together and it, and it all happens. The milk bar really happened in a very short time frame. from uh, pulling the trigger on it to having it exist physically was a very short time. I'd thought about it for years, how to, how to explore this idea, but um, yeah, sometimes it's a perfect storm where everything lines up and other times it's a terrible storm that means nothing comes out. Um, and I've definitely experienced that in varying degrees. Uh, it's funny having all the time in the world when everything got cancelled and I thought, well, now I get to do all those fun things that I always wanted to do. I just felt this enormous sort of block between me and actually like getting over that edge into doing, you know, all the things that you never get around to doing, where, whether it's some... Yeah. Um, you know, personal artwork or, or digging through the archives and reorganizing and stuff. So um, it's something I've spoken a lot about with friends recently is, is the reality of, of these blockages and um, they're creative and they're physical and they're mental for sure. But um, I, I think, yeah, always, always, um, always exploring the options really. And, and I have a lot of notebooks. I make a lot of scratchings and musings about stuff that whether it's just a little thumbnail drawing of an idea. Um, and I was flicking through some today actually. And yeah, you come back across and you go, Oh yeah, that that's kind of the, the origins of the milk bar idea, or that's kind of this and yeah. other things that it's like, Oh shit. Yeah. I should explore that idea that I had for this thing. Um, yeah. But it, it's definitely not, um, I've never met anyone, no matter how productive someone seems, I've never met anyone that doesn't have some sort of hurdle to hop through. Um, yeah. you know, and I, and I'm, I'm really thankful and lucky that, you know, some of the, the worst parts of my job is like admin, some emails, <laughs> yeah. you know, send, sending invoices for stuff, chasing invoices for stuff. But you know, that's, if that's the, as bad as my day gets, I'm, I'm very lucky and I'm very blessed, but, um, it doesn't mean that it's always easy to just, you know, cause it's also, it's being creative full time is, is pretty exhausting sometimes i go wow i wish i was packing boxes in a warehouse again because at least i could just do it i didn't have to think about it too much but um but it's the thrill of the chase always always finding new work and wondering where it would come from and sometimes it's it's someone from 15 years ago reaching out to me who i have lost touch with that goes 
I've been watching what you're up to and I now work in this industry and I'm interested yeah. in talking um, or hearing it on a podcast, you know? Yeah, it's amazing to see how those things eventually, but I mean, yeah, reality, it's um, expectations and challenges you place on yourself, isn't it? It's just, uh, it, it, um, it's easy to fatigue yourself, but it is somehow mixed, sometimes mixed up in, you know, you want to just one-up what you produced um, before and you want to, yeah. you don't necessarily need um, more accolades or, or anything, but you just inherently, you want to you achieve over and above what you did previously. Yeah, it's good. It's good to be self-critical for sure. Um, but you've also got to you know, give yourself a break sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and speaking of um, how those things manifest for, throughout the year, so we're going to round it off now by referencing you very recently did some work with um, Alex LaHaye Lay, um, on her um, album, but not just designing the cover that was creative direction. Yeah. Um, but as I understand it, that manifested by you were running a series of uh, online um, I guess gigs or sessions in your old studio called the Shaft Sessions, which is all on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And you had a bunch of mates come in, including Paul Dempsey and many others, uh, play songs. And then Alex was uh, one of the first guests that you, you didn't actually know. Yeah. And then from there, it's become this relationship that's eventuated into a full creative direction cover, um, uh, which was a physical set as well as. Um, gig artwork and, and branding and more. And then that's becoming a, a very recently launched project as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that was meeting Alex was great because she is so successful in her own right. And it has had like, she she's considered to be, you know, a new upcoming artist, but she's put so many years of work into being in bands. She was in bands for many years before going solo and, was playing gigs like at a very young age playing um she was playing at the um at the evelyn like basically weekly in in high school even um so she's uh yeah she's just such an awesome creative force uh and i think the reason we hit it off so much is because uh in doing work for any client a lot of it becomes about who they want to be perceived as like, what do they want to look like through the lens of their marketing and their design and all those things. But she is like, she is her, she is inherently what you see is what you get. And um, she's really driving her own ship and chooses, chooses to market herself as herself. You know, there's no, um, there's not a lot of mystery to that. And that's such a part of her appeal. So um, as soon as we met, we just hit it off like old friends. It was great because we were just, having a laugh and like talking about stuff. And I was actually interviewing her for my Shack session series. Uh, and she was, you know, when someone is just on board, when, when you want to talk about something and, you know, it's easy to be reserved or to kind of um, have hangups about, you know, how you're being perceived. And it was just, it was like meeting someone at a party that's a mutual friend of a friend and you just go, what about you? Do you like, you know, subject X? And they go, yeah, let me tell you about my experience with that. And, I think that we just hit it off so well because um, yeah, we both had that. And it's funny cause she, she had no real knowledge that I was involved in music at all, that I had toured or that I had done different things. So as yeah. we've got to know each other better, we've kind of talked more about that and she's like, oh wow. Okay. Yeah. You played. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. This time, that time. Um, so her trusting me with the creative direction of her latest record came from doing a bunch of little things for her, which were, again, always trying to one up myself each time I did something for her. And, um, 
but she's a, a great client because the product is so good. You know, she, she's so such a great artist and her music is fantastic. So um, trying to just put visuals together that do it justice is really the, the hardest part of that. And yeah, they generally came out fairly easy and it was working directly with her. It wasn't through a series of approvals from, um, you know, interfering other people. It was, it was a one-on-one experience. So um, yeah, that's been a really great development there for sure. Well, everyone check out um, Best of Luck Club um, yeah. online. Um, as with Parkway Drive's Ire or Deez Nuts uh, covers, your, your, your work is um, everywhere you look <laughs> and definitely worth digging into. But um, to touch on our last point, so your recent work, um, another artist who's somewhat well-known? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, as we record this, I'm just... Yeah, in a few days it'll go live, but we just did uh, a big set build for the new Tones and I uh, music video. So um, it's a song called You're So Fucking Cool, which is about to come out. Um, And I met her uh, through an amazing photographer called uh, Julia McGarren, actually, who I met through Alex Leahy. So there's a weird connection there. But um, Julia has created the real visual creative Four Tones and I and done all these amazing photo shoots. She just shot her for the return edition of Rolling Stone magazine for Australia, which is about to come out. Uh, and Julia is just brilliant. And um, she basically a, a while ago, there was an event on uh, an EP launch for Tones. And she said, I, we really want to turn one of my photographs into an installation and have an active activation that people at this launch can come through. So I got involved there and, and, did that and it was really well received by tones and by the management and everyone. Uh, and so then it led down the path of this, this newest music video, which is probably her fifth or sixth music video, I guess, but it's, it's her next big track to kind of push, you know, worldwide. Uh, so invisible studios who shot her original dance monkey video, um, they were involved and a good friend of mine, Carl is the DOP and he, uh, he's been trying to get me on a gig with them for a while, but, they just didn't really have the, the need for a, a set build. So this video, which will be out by the time people are listening to this, if they look up, you're so fucking cool. You'll see that there's, there's like six, there's six sets and a miniature as well that I built for it. So um, it was really, really fun to explore. Uh, and I got to do it. Um, it was a really tight turnaround and I got to work with my wife, Mo on it, um, who is just amazing at everything she does, but she really yeah. gone as a, uh, as a set dresser and it's all the little details that really sell a set in these settings. So it was, it was a crazy week of work on it, but it was, um, yeah, really rewarding, but her, you know, the dance monkey video just hit a billion views, which is, there's about 75 videos in the world that have done those kind of numbers. So it's crazy to be, uh, you know, in the middle of this isolation and to pick up this little bit of work, which was really difficult working situation because of social distancing as well. We couldn't, all be working in the same room together. And when they were shooting, people were out of the room and vice versa. Yeah. Um, all of those things, but it, you know, under pressure, you make diamonds, I guess. And so we, I'm really proud of the work we did on that. And uh, I'm really excited for people to see it and have seen it and to share the behind the scenes of it once that all kind of comes out as well. Cause uh, it's weird. But the thing is, I'm not like the very start of our whole conversation. I only, I just approach it in the way that I've always approached everything. I yeah. I didn't train to be a set designer or a builder, but I knew that we could get it done and I knew that we could really sell the ideas that we were trying to create there. So um, it was really cool to see them come to light and uh, 
working with a team of people who really their lives changed when that, that video went so crazy um, as a production company um, and to feel like we were really all firing at the same level and creating something that they were really excited to shoot in and she was excited to perform inside of and it all kind of came together. So yeah, amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, uh, yeah, might, you could call it one part, you know, absurd, absurd or um, one part, one part unrealistic, but you know, not to be, um, forgotten uh certainly i think yeah. it's something again to reminisce about um for the for the long term yeah look i'm gonna end it with one one last um thing so um it's partly a bit of a statement um but but also a bit of a question for you so uh look i mean it's um a little unjust i guess within particularly within australia where um the creative industry has has definitely suffered for this year mm. um in a number of ways one was this outpouring of um generosity and altruism at the start of the year in relation to um you know the climate and the uh, rapidly escalating bushfire situation basically the creative industries banded together and did something about it and um and put together a lot of goodwill to produce a lot of work um for public fundraising and and more and thus, uh, but then, as we've quickly found out through the COVID nineteen experience, they're also the the first to suffer as well through mm. venues being shut down and um, and livelihoods being changed for an unforeseeable future. So I, I wanted to ask, I guess, um, I guess what you were looking to direct people towards, um, but also how you feel a little bit about that. Um, what does the future look like for yourself, your peers, and um, and your hopes for the industry? Yeah, I mean it's it's just so unknown to everyone like there's no real clarity especially when it comes to uh you know the government's assistance with all that stuff uh i think it's just going to be a very different world i just really hope that uh people that we could all learn something from it um but i just you know i've been lucky enough to still have some work throughout this kind of period it's been patchy and i really don't know what is to come in the coming months because a big part of my year is festival season building sets and building activations for you know not just music festivals but um, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival was one of my my ones that got moved for this year and you know plus then there's the corporate side of activations and and event launches which who knows how they're going to look and you know uh, going digital with a lot of that stuff is also a possibility but uh, people you know people want to be around people that's never going to change uh, but it is hard to say because I feel like a lot of the work that I do is really the the fluffy stuff on top at the end. You know, it's the cherry. As all the, there's all the framework of what it takes to put together an event or a um, or some sort of product, and then I kind of do a little bit of extra on top. So I really I'm really unsure to be honest about what the future is. But the one thing that I have, uh, you know, in my not in my back pocket, but the one thing I kind of have is that I am. I like to think I'm quite adaptable and I'm also, I'm very happy to do what I need to do to make things work. Like I don't, anything, any kind of career that I have and success that I have in, in the creative industry, uh, no one owes that to me. Like I work for that and it's something that I would continue to work for. Um, it's what I, it's the passion that I chased when I worked in a warehouse packing boxes or when I was um, working in a movie theater when I was a kid, I was constantly trying to push things for my band or for you know different artwork stuff so if it all changes after if it all changes for me after this and i have to re-figure out what what my world looks like that's part of the adventure really 
that's a privileged position to be able to say that because I'm lucky to have a roof over my head that I can afford. Um, but yeah, I just, I really, I really worry for live music venues, especially because it's such a, um, it's so important. Like it's so, so important. All the people involved in the bands and all the crew and the touring people and musicians, but you know, without, without a venue that becomes like a second home for many people in all genres, not just in punk and hardcore, but, you know, in all kinds of ways, it really is like a safe haven for a lot of people from a life that they perhaps are not enjoying, you know, the, the escape of, of music, of theatre, of comedy, of all these different things is so important. So I just, uh, I just really hope that there is, you know, some reprieve for that and that the the scene can rebuild in all of those different genres that it can rebuild itself to a point that it's, you know, sustainable and, um, that, but there's, there'll be losses for sure. There has to be, you know, it's just reality that, um, you know, economics does not work for a business to be shut for so long without the support. So I'm hoping, uh, to be able to contribute to that support as best as possible. Um, which was exactly what people did when the bushfires were around, but it's, it's hard to know what the right thing is to do because, uh, you know, it's not just about money. Some of the stuff, you know, there's a lot of, it's, it's so much more multi-layered than that um, with people's experience. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm, of no, I'm no, 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 no more knowledgeable than anyone else, but I just, uh, I really hope that everyone that's really feeling it is, is trying to, keep their head up because it's it's really tough and it's kind of scary um it's kind of scary for me and i feel pretty secure so it's really scary for plenty of people i'm sure yeah for sure it's um and don't want to end it on a downer but it's um it is it's sobering times and and you know for for many people uh their livelihood whether it's their work or for um you know, I'm not involved in the music industry anymore, but it was part of my livelihood, you know, regular um, attendance or, or um, contribution towards the music industry in any way. So um, yeah. it feels, feels hard, but obviously um, the underlying factor in there is value your artists and, um, and, and pay them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, also really, I'm also really excited for what it means for people to understand a little more. Like we, you know, our generation hasn't lived through, um, you know, a world war two or a Vietnam, or, you know, this is like a, a big deal for our, our generation. Like we haven't had the struggles of other eras. And also um, we've been very free as a country, Australia in general, very free country. So um, I just hope people can use it to appreciate life a little bit more, um, appreciate your friends, like not getting to see your friends when you're busy, it just kind of happens and you go, Oh, I've been meaning to catch up with that person, but, I'm busy with work or kids or whatever. Um, but when you literally can't see them, like even if you have the time, you cannot go and see them. It, it kind of, it changes the narrative of that a lot, whether that's family or friends or whatever. So I've been trying to reach out to people. A lot of it has been in, in doing my big kind of spring clean here, sharing memories and photos and old, old gig flyers and stuff with people who I may not have spoken to for years. Yeah. Um, and it's a really, it feels really nice to reconnect with people. So I'm aiming to try to make that part of my day to day is to like, you know, jump on the phone to people a bit more if they want to, not everyone wants to answer a phone. Like we're so used to texting it. I usually, if I ever call someone, I pre-text going, Hey, I'm thinking about calling you later on. Yeah. 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 I'm not a psychopath. Yeah. I'm not not a psychopath. If you don't want to chat on the phone, I'm cool. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I, I hope that people use it as a, as an excuse to be like, 
tell other people how they feel more, you know, tell them while they're here and while they can access these people uh, that, you know, it's, you know, that we love each other and that it's important to sort of know that everyone's got their own shit going on, but everyone still thinks of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I really appreciate that. And thanks. I mean, we went over time, but who gives a shit? I've, you know, I, <laughs> like I told you, I've known, I've known you the longest and um, it was not yeah. going to cut it off. And I appreciate the thoughts, um, not only for, you know, how open you are about um, all your projects and, and, you know, all you've given, but also all that time you've donated um, over the years to so many people acting as, you know, mentor, peer, um, guiding people through a generosity towards bands, you know, so often for the shared experiences um, as opposed to money and just just generally leaning into um, exciting opportunities that is ultimately, I mean, at the very least, it's gathered you a wife, hasn't it? So Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and, and, and I get just as much out of it as anyone that I ever give my time to. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's a no-brainer. Well, look, we'll send out, obviously, when we promote out the podcast, put out some content of the work you've been involved in and um, to give oh, cool. a bit of a visual representation. But um, anyone who wants to find out more about what Callum does, uh, check out his Instagram. It's at Callum Preston. Um, you can also find him on Twitter um, doing uh, various ramblings. But uh, we'll put out some um, some other work of yours and um, so people can investigate and go down the rabbit hole a bit more. Awesome. But honestly, thank you so much again. Really appreciate it. And um, all the very best, Callum. Thank you, man. All the best with the pod. <laughs> Cheers, man. Thanks. So that was my chat with uh, Callum Preston as part of the A Lot to Say podcast, um, episode number one in the can. And he's the first person interviewed for it, as I um, mentioned before. You can find details of what Callum's up to on various social media platforms, as, uh, as we mentioned, at Callum Preston on Twitter and Instagram. And I'll include some of the links to, um, you know, the respective projects that was mentioned in the show notes. Uh, so this was a lot to say with Callum Preston, exploring unconventional career paths and the projects that consume us. I've been your host, Gary Williams, or Gaz, as people call me. Uh, music in this podcast is by my band Bateman, actually. It's programmed by my mate, uh, Gareth Leach, who was our drummer. And you can follow a lot to say on the Alts Projects social media channels at Alts Projects. Thanks again. Catch you on the next episode.